If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Just occasionally now, I wake up with a feeling, it's almost like you've woken up with a song in your head that you sort of know but can't quite remember. And I think I, now that my son is weaned, so I'm no longer breastfeeding him and he goes to nursery, I occasionally wake up and the thing I'm remembering and the sort of tantalising flavour that I can almost locate is what it felt like to be alone before I had a child. And as other people become entwined in his life, I'm more free to do the things that fill up my internal hollows. And for me, that's always been nature, waking up at five in the morning and paddling through silt to have freezing cold dip in the middle of December. You know, it can be something fairly brutal and small and short but it makes me it makes me feel alive and vital in a way that I struggle to when I'm at home with the heating on playing with Lego. Hi I'm Francesca Spector and you're listening to Alonement the podcast that broadens the conversation around alone time. Each episode, I ask my guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. At the heart of every episode is one central question. What turns solitude into a good or bad experience? Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. It is a total joy to introduce this week's guest, Nell Frizzell. Nell is the author of The Panic Years, a deep, honest, yet hilariously funny memoir all about Nell's journey from a single woman in her late 20s to becoming a mother in her early 30s. Nell is also a British Vogue columnist and a freelance journalist writing for national newspapers like The Guardian together with Vice and Grazia. This is her first book, which she sold the publishing rights to, bloody impressively, after a 13-way auction. The panic years, Nell writes, are defined by the eternal question, should I have a baby, and if so, when, how, why, and with whom? It's the title every millennial woman should have on their bookshelf, according to Pandora Sykes. Nell starts one of those conversations where you think, why the hell weren't we having it before? And who better to continue that conversation with than the author herself?
it is so wonderful to have you on the show. I need to thank you to start with for the most wonderful weekend because we are currently in lockdown and fun is very hard to find. But I've been nested with a copy of your beautiful book, The Panic Years, and I've had the absolute best time. Oh, I'm glad. My very orange, very beautiful book. Um, I like to think that I'm keeping people company at the moment. It's a really nice thought that um, as we're all in our sort of strange atomized lives, I'm able to talk to you. Um, and I'm I'm also sort of, I'm always pleased when someone finds it fun because there is quite a lot of wrung out <laughs> distress in that book. I'm glad that you managed to soar above it all. <laughs> well, don't get me wrong. It yeah, I'm a 29-year-old woman. It was a megaphone to my soul. <laughs> but also very comic. How? I mean, that combination is pretty hard to find. So yes, I, I laughed, I cried. I was it was it was an emotional roller coaster, but a but a worthy one, a very, very worthy one. And I honestly it's one of my favorite books I read all year, and it's November. <laughs> You're very kind. I think you have to in the in the face of absolute pure blind panic, what can you do other than laugh or go and live in a hole? And I'm happy that you're not living in a hole. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the panic years is amazing to me because, you know, like, like alonement, you know, it's, it's a concept that you have coined because you felt that there was a need to define this period in a woman's life. And I don't want to try and crassly define it myself. What do you mean when you say the panic years? Well, I noticed something that, around 28 in my case, but any time between sort of 27 and your late 30s, a lot of people, particularly women around me, seem to be going through these enormous periods of upheaval, sometimes quite distressing, sometimes quite um, uncomfortable and upsetting. People were breaking up with long-term partners, changing job, moving country, retraining, um, changing their sexuality, having children, getting married, massive things were happening. And I felt enormously out of step with the sort of direction of travel because I woke up on my 28th birthday, single, uh, recently made redundant um, in a flat share. No, with uh, I just moved out of the flat that my boyfriend and I had shared. So I wasn't quite sure where I was going to live. And honestly, that summer I'd been to so many weddings and people were getting pregnant and I just thought this is a mess. And I thought I was having an individual personal breakdown caused by my own character failings. (laughs) I thought I was sort of commitment phobic flaneur. Um, And then it was only when I turned 32 and I had a newborn baby and I looked back at that period and thought, oh, hold on, no, this wasn't an individual freak out. This was a systematic changing of cer- like changing of your individual circumstances because of the social conditioning and situation around you. Of course, in your late 20s, as a woman who's brought up in this kind of culture, um, a fairly sort of heteronormative culture, you believe that your fertility is finite and that it's on you to get your life sorted whatever that means, to achieve a certain level of material or professional success before you have a baby. And so, of course, as you're staring down the barrel of 30, you start to panic. You think that you're not ready, you haven't got things sorted, and you have to immediately get all the things that are not right 
right. And that might mean breaking up with someone you love. That might mean moving out of a house and a flat share that you love. It might mean leaving a job that you love. It might mean having all those things torn from your bleeding hands <laughs> against your permission. Um, and I sort of saw this now in retrospect arc of change as something that wasn't a failing. It was actually a period of enormous creative and personal potential um, that is at times gross and embarrassing and sort of careless, um, but it is necessary. And when I understood that, I also understood the intrinsic sexism of that, that none of the men in my life seemed to have undergone anything like that. They saw their fertility as a sort of Peter Pan infinite resource that they could call on whenever they wanted or never. Um, their ability to work was never going to be questioned by their having children. Their relationships seemed to be largely based on their terms. You know, if they want the level of commitment they wanted seemed to be the level of commitment they could get gain from their partner. And I, I just realized that women are sort of expected to carry this burden of dragging our lives forward almost entirely alone. And it made me really cross and it made me con reconsider what had just happened in a really short period of time. You know, I went from single at 28 to a mother at 32. It was like turbocharged and possibly insane. You know, in retrospect, I could have maybe slowed down because touch wood three years later, I still haven't got the menopause. Not every single last egg has fallen out of my ass. I'm doing okay. Um, but it really did feel panic inducing. And so I... I wanted to write a book about early motherhood because I was in the midst of it and think it is one of the most fundamental, life-changing and significant things anyone can do. And I'd never really seen it spoken about in the ways that I was experiencing it. But I had uh, um, an agent who quite rightly pointed out that there's this, there's this bit before the baby that I was actually really interested in. And I'd been wanting to give a name to it for years. I remember at sort of 30 saying, oh, what do you, like, there is no word for this. It's so frustrating that I'd see people around me, women a couple of years younger, running headlong into the same questions that had knocked me off course. And we had no shorthand. We couldn't say, oh, this is adolescence. This is a midlife crisis. This is empty nest syndrome. This, you know, there was no word for what those people were undergoing and the majority of them were women or people who identified as women and I realized that we without that shorthand terminology we were sort of paralyzed to prepare you know or we were unable to prepare ourselves and each other and unable to really be allies to each other in the way that I think we should like wouldn't it be brilliant if you could just say to someone oh yeah and I think she's she's in her panic years or she's she's in the midst of a flux and we'd all sort of know what that meant and you would whatever it is you do bring around lasagna take them on holiday look over their cv the things that you need someone to do when you're in the midst of a sort of period of turmoil and without that so I wanted to give that term so then everyone would have to wake up to the reality of this men would have to start talking about it women would start talking to about it we'd tell our children about it our parents would inform us about it our bosses would know it was happening our landlords would be sympathetic to it you know I think if you have if you can coin a term like you have brilliantly if you can coin a term then you can start a conversation around something that will otherwise feel like personal shame and there's no reason why it should and I think it's brilliant that you tackle 
all the nuance of that <laughs> in in the book because you know it's not just this magic trajectory of uh, you know having a baby it's it, it it is it is this this kind of strange meandering snakes and ladders of of you know as you chronicle comically but also very poignantly in the book you know of the terrible dates and and the and the, the <laughs> decisions and and the sort of the freedom of having those single fun years but but also the, the the panic that lies under that i really want to get onto that because i think it it is it is interesting you talk about when you became becoming newly single and how people sort of congratulate you but there's a time in your life when you don't necessarily want that congratulations or that an encumbered <laughs> state um but I, but i wanted to start by asking at the start of the book you talk about how you wake up on your 28th birthday you've broken up with your significant boyfriend long term and that's the person you thought you would have children with and you don't know what's happening then on your 33rd birthday you wake up next to your partner Nick and your and your newborn and you know it's it's amazing that that journey um <laughs> those states as well at age 28 that sounds like you feel quite alone in you know physically alone and massively yes but then there's a sort of aloneness that you talk about later on when having children so so what what does alone mean to you now and you know did that change for you over your panic years it's a great question and I'm really glad to talk have the opportunity to talk about being alone because I think it does change hugely over that period I think being alone before your panic years, being alone in your panic years and being alone after your panic years all have a really different tang to them. Um, during the panic years, it was a feeling of alone that felt like being judged, if I'm honest, you know, to go to a wedding alone, which I did do uh, a few times. That one notable wedding where I um, didn't have a plus one, I cycled there on my own, uh, like <laughs> through the countryside wearing an insane trouser suit with like a man's haircut and loads of gold jewellery and didn't really know anyone at the wedding and wasn't drinking because I was cycling, just had this very sort of strange siloed experience of a wedding. And I went to a couple of weddings on my own. And it's very hard in those situations or baby showers or um, engagement parties or 30th birthdays or whatever to if you turn up to those events that are all about and geared towards celebrating a sort of mass culture you know they're all about celebrating the couple the family a way of behaving that we consider sort of um culturally quote-unquote normal to be the alone person in that scenario is very hard not to feel judged like a failure like an odd one out like you're you have somehow disappointed people or you have frustrated your own happiness or you've made some enormous error. So you might, you then have two options. You either self-flagellate or you lean into it. And so I started to really lean into it. And um, I went, I was going to talk about this later, but I went uh, to New Zealand on my own, which is, um, I've got a New Zealand passport. And so there was always this sort of slight corner of my mind that wondered if I could maybe live there. So I often did that on my own. I lived on my own. I started, um, I was a freelance, I started working on my own at home. I became a freelance journalist when I was made redundant. And so I had to start seeing those, that state of working, living, 
socializing even alone as a positive decision and not because I'd failed to couple up with someone you know the whole phrase of being someone's other half and I had to think well if I'm no one's other half then I suppose I am a whole person in my own right and I might as well do that as well as I can but I had this recurring thought the the overwhelming pressure to meet someone reproduce buy a house become part of a team stick with your group of friends, live in a place where you could know your neighbours, all of that meant that occasionally there was a little self-sabotage part of my heart that would dream of being a woman, like a wild, unwashed woman living in a cottage in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, like, I'm, I'm fairly physically confident and active. And I thought I could chop my own wood. I can make my own bread. I could draw water from a stream. I could, you know, I could become self-sufficient, what you know, in the sort of almost masculine ideal of self, the Hemingway <laughs> version of self-sufficiency. <laughs> but the truth of that is that you are, to, you're not emotionally self-sufficient. You're just emotionally closed off. <laughs> you know, you're, that is what you do when you can't bear the weight of interpersonal and interdependent relationships. And so um, I was dragged back from going off and living in the woods periodically by a therapist and by my friends and by my parents. But I think there is a part of most people in their in that period in their life where they think, oh, you know what, the solution to all of this would just be to run away. And being alone, I think, felt like running away. Um, something that I want to say is that it often felt like you were meant to spend your 20s being this sort of carefree, magically infertile, fun person. And then the moment you hit your 30s, you're meant to be this responsible, sorted, fertile, um, loving, like part of a unit. And the the transition from one to the other completely foxed me. And because you're uh, sort of, you can only transition from one to the other internally on your own, alone, but it's in order to then join another person or a family or a wider sort of community. And so it's a very weird um, conflict between being alone and being part of a group that it's a sort of circle that I'm a square that I'm trying to circle all the way through the book, but it's tricky. And then I met someone under quite interesting and odd circumstances. And the way I met, uh, I met my partner through work he was working for a sort of in, um he was working for a sort of non-profit uh organization and he asked me if I wanted to go to a refugee camp in Calais and write about Eritrean refugees at uh New Year Eritrean New Year and I said yes and we went and it was just like a work I thought it was just a work sort of thing and thought he was lovely and what a shame I never meet men like him and then right at the end of this very extreme 24 hour day in each other's company, he said, Oh, maybe we should go for a debrief. If you're going to write about sort of, if you can talk about national, write about national service in Eritrea, you might get a kickback. And I thought, fine. So we went for a drink a couple of days later and I got absolutely hammered. He took me to a, he'd booked a table at a Travelodge uh, is a sort of hilarious move because I'd said how it was my sort of dream to my dream date would be to go to go bowling go to a TGI Fridays and end up in a travelodge so he'd booked a, t- a table in travelodge and 
because I thought this was a work meeting, I'd obviously not shaved my legs. I was in the middle of a really heavy period. I don't even know if I'd bothered to put makeup on. I was just like, this is a work meeting. And I ended up um, losing my bag. So he had to take me home in a taxi. I obviously invited him in, introduced him to my flatmate, my male flatmate at the time, and said, this is my husband. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then... And then we went to bed together. I forgot I had my period and I woke up in what genuinely looked like a murder scene. There was blood everywhere. And um, he was meant to be getting a train to Dorset that morning. And we'd, I would obviously ruined that for him. And I turned over and opened my eyes and looked at his face and just said, I'm in love with you, which I'd never said before. And funny enough, he didn't say it back, but he did. <laughs> It took him a couple of weeks, but I sort of just knew immediately that this was, this was the person for me. And I'd, you know, I'd been, I'd loved people before, deeply, deeply loved. And the man that I break up with at the beginning of the book is still my best friend. And I gave him a, I sort of threw him a stag do when he got married and we talk on the phone every week. And my partner, my baby calls him Nick Cake. I'm like, we love him. Um, He's also called Nick, confusingly. Um, but I just knew that this was a sort of tangibly different kind of love. And so I was fully in love and um, I was sudden, my aloneness was really attractive to him. You know, that I was this self-sufficient, independent, he, he's the only child of a single mum. So he kind of liked the fact that I was this working, um, fairly driven person who had a sort of, you know, my political principles were already established my understanding of family and friendships was already there you know I was I was not sort of 21 year old um ingenue far from it and so then I got pregnant um after a lot of wrangling and a sort of a year-long campaign because I really wanted to have a baby and he was absolutely sure he never wanted to have children um and then the being alone from the moment you get pregnant I thought about this when you were asking me about being alone from when you get find out you're pregnant until you wean your baby. And in my case, that was two and a half years. You are never physically alone ever again. There is someone inside your body growing from your body. And then even once you've pushed them out of your body, they are feeding off your body. I remember looking down at my son when he was six months old and thinking, I have, that's all me. I've grown you entirely. Not a whisper of food or water had ever passed his lips that hadn't been produced by me and my body. And so the, physically, I was as unalone, for want of a better word, than I'd ever been in my life. But my God, I was lonely. (laughs) There were times when I was, I felt so alone. And those long nights and days where you don't talk to another adult for 13, 15, 18 hours. Um, and that's very hard. So I think my understanding of being alone then was quite different. And now my child is three. I am going back to the sort of pre-panic years understanding of alone, where I, during the summer, during lockdown, would sometimes put my son to bed jump on my bike, cycle out of the city I live in, down the river for like 20 minutes, go swim in the, like strip off naked, swim in the river, um, 
put up a tent in a bit of woodland and just sleep outside on my own overnight, wake up at like five in the morning, put, pack my tent away, empty a thermos, drink it and cycle back and be at home by the time he woke up. And it was like the most perfect crime that I had had this adventure alone and it's kind of like the synthesis of the mad woman living in the woods on her own and the mum with a partner who lives in a house I'd sort of managed to by the skin of my teeth inhabit both personas Um, and that is a source of huge joy to me now that I can go to the allotment on my own I can swim in the river on my own I can sleep in the woods on my own Um, and there's a certain amount of privilege involved in that for sure Um, but it's also I feel like I'm reaching a new understanding of what being alone is and it's pretty joyful (laughs) that's That's a very long answer to your question I think there is so much (laughs) back there especially you know I obviously I follow you on Twitter as well and so I see your daily wild swims and you know all those posts and things and, and they're you know amazing to watch you have so much capacity for what I call alonement because you take mm. so much joy in and I think it's interesting that when you met Nick you were very much living your life alone and as you say leaning into that alone life in that you had gone freelance you decided to stay freelance um, you write that you said yes to every commission. And I think there's really something in that because not not only was that a quality that Nick loved about you, that as you say, you were independent, you knew your own mind, but I think the temptation, I suppose, during those panic years would be to almost dictate your life around finding someone, however one does mm. that in the 21st century. I mean, I suppose it's spending nights on dating apps rather than really anything (laughs) else because there's no way to really meet someone especially I mean during lockdown at the moment yeah you know I think there's something wonderful in that so I I think that you know you you really are a very aspirational alonement figure to me um I think (laughs) you know I think it's a bit really interesting because I think there's a lot of discussion about life stages and that feeling of sometimes being out of step with your peers at different life stages who've perhaps gone on to you know get into their long-term relationships or have children and I think also there's there's a passage in the book where you discuss the nuances of this which is a way I've never heard it described before and um, I'm sorry I'm going to do that horrible thing where I read your book back this is, I was going to say my heart absolutely soars to see that you've got little post-it notes in my book <laughs> it's so nice I've never felt so valid I've never felt so validated in my life honestly I don't think I don't think I did um I, I studied English at university I don't think I did as much just to a book <laughs> little, little highlights and, and, and you've and got a completely <laughs> empty copy of Mill on the Floss <laughs> on a shelf somewhere so you write uh you say single life freedom and independence is the happy ending for everyone from 20-something graduates to 68-year-old divorcees we strive for a life untethered but for women in the flux, a breakup is often just the beginning of the story and freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. As my friend, the author Amy Liptrot, once put it to me in a brilliantly caps-heavy text, I remember when I broke up with my Berlin boyfriend and a younger friend tried to console me by saying, you're not weighed down anymore. I was like, I want to be weighed down. Bring me the weights. I'm ready. <laughs> And I just, I, you know, I love that because it's almost, it's almost a narrative that was sort of not 
allowed to express really is it you have to be the you know the, the sort of carefree you know even if even if you're in a relationship you know at, at work for instance you have to pretend that you're not trying for a baby if you're you know if you, you have to almost you know pretend that oh ne- the thought has never occurred to you despite you being in a long-term relationship and in your 30s you know it's that strange thing of not being able to own your desire which is something you speak about a lot in the book but yeah you know, I, I think that that's so interesting that feeling of wanting to be you know not so much tethered but at least I suppose anchored yeah um yeah bless Amy for putting that so well uh but yes it's ridiculous and actually it's bollocks the idea that you in order to be loved by another person you have to keep them at arm's length in a in order to be good at your job, you have to act like there's nothing else in your life. In order to be a good friend, you have to keep the rest of your life secret. It's all so untrue. And actually, the only way that you can form anything like a significant and genuine um, meaning and relationship with anyone or anything in your life is to be open to the vulnerability and interdependence of that. You know, I think I genuinely thought that the word interdependent was purely unhealthy growing up you know I used to say very scathingly that my parents were very interdependent and that's why they had taken 17 years to finally break up but that's one a very harsh judgment on them but two also misses the fairly fundamental truth that interdependence is what keeps human society going and has what is why we are sort of top of the food chain and has and, and allowed us to evolve and survive over thousands of years the fact that we will look after each other and fill in each other's gaps and um we will protect the vulnerable and the strong will be compromised by the weakest and you know i think there's uh the fact that we can interweave our dependencies and vulnerabilities and strengths means that we are a stronger unit both individually and as a society and so of course it was really confronting to be in a relationship where I had to open up myself and like you're you know you were saying very brilliantly just now that you have to sort of pretend particularly in the early, early stage of relationship that you've never thought about commitment oh my god you're not one of those people who like cares about whether you live in a house you just want to have sex on a beach and talk about the doors and you like hey I don't wash but I always look amazing and you at work you can't you have to pretend that like oh my god I've always been completely driven I have no five-year plan in fact my part if my partner asked me to take a day off work I'd dump him like I'm all about my (laughs) all about my job and work that's not true either you know a good the kind of job that you can do for long and meaningful time and actually do well is one that accepts that you are in a, a whole person and that can support that and then you can support your colleagues and you will be able to dedicate you know I think about this a lot now <clears throat> I have a child something as simple as a crash and in in work crash would allow you to be both a parent and an employee simultaneously and it would make you better at both and so that interdependence um that that is a sort of um best reached I think by confronting your aloneness (laughs) in order to get there is really 
it's really healthy and it's sort of anti-capitalist and it sort of feels radical now, but it's not. It's the most found, the sort of founding thing we have as a species is that we should be um, involved in each other, <laughs> to put it very boldly. Um, and so when you're a woman in your, I, I would say early 30s, but it happens for people at all different times, right up until their sort of 40s and 50s, you have to, at some point, let your guard down and look into the eyes of someone and say, I want you to be your, I want you to be mine and I want to be yours. And like Amy says, I want to feel the weight of someone else. I want to be rooted and anchored and secured by them. And that shouldn't be restrictive. And if it does feel restrictive, then please think about whether that's the right thing for you. Um, but it should feel sort of liberating. It's liberating to me that I have a partner now who can stay at home and make sure our baby doesn't set on fire and I can go out for a run for two hours. Like that, that's the liberation of interdependence. If I was a single mother, I wouldn't have that freedom or I'd have to pay someone in order to get it or I'd have to rely on my family in order to get it. There's no way around other people helping you. <laughs> that's very, very interesting because it's almost being in that partnership, sort of not being alone in parenthood allows you to have aloneness because it allows you to almost gift each other that aloneness. You know, it's, it's a whole other thing to, to solo parent as well. If you don't have that support network, which, you know, thankfully people do, you know, people have it from parents or, or friends or, you know, or childcare, but without that, it would be very hard. And I think, coming back to your um, romantic image of being a woman in the woods, um, which, you know, I, um, I have no doubt you would survive very well because you do speak <laughs> about your you know, amazing cycling ventures and your wild swimming. And yes, but, but despite that, you know, I think it's interesting to examine that notion of aloneness because, you know, I speak about this in the book, actually, how the traditionally the, the, the notion of a sort of solitary figure is someone like you know Hen Henry Theroux who went to the woods to write his book all by himself or um you know the wonderful Sarah Maitland who wrote an another book about mm -hmm. being alone and you know she but but she lives in the Outer Hebrides and while that's an amazing lifestyle it's not one that's relatable for everyone so I think to be mm -hmm. able to say you know you can you can introduce alonement into your life you can have this necessary and positive aloneness which which sustains your sense of identity but interdependence is sort of necessary to underpin that I think that's a really important distinction I want to also come on to so we spoke about loneliness and I think there's an amazing stat in your book about how you know over 40 percent of mothers under 30 feel lonely some or all of the time and you know in it's interesting in in lockdown this is intensified the the stat the latest stat is that over 50 percent of young mums experience anxiety and loneliness during lockdown they were in fact the loneliest group uh, and mm. of course you know when I, when I first got in touch with you for this podcast you tweeted about the very specific kind of loneliness about this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Being a mother alone with her child and of course you're not alone you've got this tiny doll-shaped human but how you know do you think that that's do you think that gets enough airtime that loneliness because you know clearly your your tweet resonated a lot with many people (laughs) yeah I was really I was sort of heartened and saddened by how much traction that got no we don't talk about it nearly enough we don't talk about maternal loneliness maternal fury maternal boredom maternal anxiety none of them get the airtime that I think they should And when I read a stat, like I remember when the National Childbirth Trust um, released their Hidden Half campaign that showed 50% of people experienced a mental health issue during pregnancy or the year after. And I remember thinking, why are the other 50% lying? (laughs) (laughs) We all do. And when I hear that over 50% of uh, mothers have experienced loneliness during lockdown, I think, well, the other 50% are lying. We all, it is such a lonely endeavor because and it's really hard to explain um to someone who hasn't been in that situation not because I think you those people don't have empathy of course they do but I think because we don't talk about it enough culturally it's really hard to imagine but and I think carers will probably relate to this um either of elderly or disabled uh family and friends that you are physically sharing time and space with another person but you are not emotionally or verbally able to interact with them in maybe the way that you used to or would like to. And I think that's the, that's the nub of it really that I, the, on my son's third birthday, I spent 15 hours 
not talking to another adult all day. And we went to the park and we sat by a fountain and ate our Rice Krispie cakes. And we um, like made, you know, he opened his birthday cards and it was, should have been a nice day. But this howling emptiness of not having another adult to reflect with or share with or uh, sort of um, almost indulge in was really hard. You know, I think it really reminded me of when I was in New Zealand, there was, (laughs) I was down in the South Island in Queenstown. And I remember there was a possibility of going on a boat tour around Milford Sounds, which is this amazing field, probably one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I, because I was on my own, I bought a bike and I was cycling around New Zealand, which by the way, is an insane idea when you remember that they're the Southern Alps in New Zealand. But apart from that, um, <laughs> I, I'd got down there and I remember thinking, do I want to spend $150 going in a boat around a field on my own? And I realized that it wouldn't be the same kind of experience, that some things on your own are wonderful because they're on your own. But sometimes if you're on your own, those things can actually just make that aloneness tip over into loneliness Mm. because you almost want the reflection of another adult consciousness to not validate your experience, but just um, invest in that experience in some way. I remember thinking if I if I sat in a boat and stared at this unfeasibly beautiful scene on my own, all that it will actually do is highlight my aloneness in quite a negative way. And um, instead, I just cycled up the lake and went for a fry up <laughs> on my own. And I think sometimes um, the scale of the things or the quality of the things you do in your alonement time, what you call alonement, are different to the possibly Instagram fodder that you think is what constitutes quality time and I had carved out on my son's birthday this plan that we would you know have this really special time we'd go to a local botanic garden that he really likes and I'd make him a cake and he would you know it would all be very sort of social media you know a social media idea of what a third birthday looks like and actually what I should have done is made sure that I was with someone else, you know, with a child and we could have spoken to each other and done something fairly prosaic. But actually standing at some swings with another person and talking, just talking to them about, you know, what I always want to do on his birthday is talk about giving birth because I think it's a really interesting um, life changing event. And th- I wanted that human connection really more than I wanted something that looked in a photo like a beautiful third birthday actually why what you know why did I care about why did I care about the kind of dressing of that day the the human contact is what's key and maternal loneliness I think is really exacerbated by the fact that we live in a consumerist capitalist society that has sort of devalued parenthood to a to a point now in which we're quite encouraged to do it in a fairly silent, domestic, atomized way. You know, there aren't, the way people talk about groups of mums in cafes, like that is some kind of war crime that, <laughs> that women would dare to get together and take up a bit of space to have some human contact in what 
is otherwise a 24 hour day of sleep deprivation and loneliness. It's just horrendous, you know. And oh, I know what I was saying that I because my partner was a student because he was retraining as a teacher at the time. Uh, and if you are a, in this country, if you're a student or if you are a freelance worker, you are entitled to absolutely zero parental leave. So he I gave birth on the Monday and he was legally expected to go back to work on the Tuesday. Luckily, he managed to beg five days um, compassionate leave. But that meant that I had basically six days of co-parenting and then I was on my own and he would leave for work at sort of half past six in the morning because he was working on the other side of London and he'd come back at about half past six in the evening. And during those 12 hours, quite a lot of the time, I was absolutely wordless and I was fully occupied in a kind of fight or flight mode. I literally was the only person keeping, making sure that this child was alive (laughs) and keeping them alive and that can be everything from checking they haven't choked to feeding them to making sure they haven't rolled over, that they're not suffocating, that they're not too hot, wondering why they're crying, wondering what this rash is, if the depression, you know, if this their sunken head is too sunken, if they if their eyes are too glassy. You know, you're in a constant state, or I was, of mild terror that at some point your child is going to die and it's all on you. And I was I'm lucky that I had my mum in London and Nick's mum lives in London but they weren't there they couldn't be there all the time and that you know at 7 30 in the morning when he was my son was screaming and my tits were exploding and I was still bleeding and I hadn't slept for more than two hours straight I felt incredibly alone and I am an incredible I am a wildly privileged white educated woman who was living in a fairly stable housing situation. So the for me to have felt distressed shows the sort of, I cannot imagine what that's like if you don't have my level of privilege. And it can, how anyone with more than one child, anyone on uh, non-permanent, zero, zero hours, low paid contract, a single parent, someone who is experiencing racism or transphobia or someone who has been locked out of education at 15, how they're meant to navigate that whole experience completely bewilders me. I think it would be terrifying. And they do. And it's this joke that I have with my friend that if I worked in recruitment, (laughs) I would give all the jobs to single parents, parents of twins, people who had their children young, you know, I think anyone that can do those things, um, they can probably take on any of the jobs that we're doing. <laughs> because you have to have this sort of uh, a log- an understanding of logistics that is all beyond military, you have to be good under stress, you have to be organised, you have to be a good communicator, you have to be physically incredibly resilient, um, you know it's a huge undertaking and so the loneliness um it might rumble under your day like a kind of heartbeat and it might occasionally roar up and feel like it's biting you around the throat but it's there it's there a huge amount of the time I think it's really interesting there I think there's quite a lot of 
almost overlap between when you talk about social media, the way we talk about um, how things should look as a mother, well, as a parent, and, you know, how things should look when you're alone. You know, we, we, we don't speak about these things in moderation. Being, you know, being a mother is a wonderful thing, which, you know, very, very sadly, as you do cover in your book, you know, a lot of people are wanting to happen and it hasn't quite happened yet. You know, and, you know, equally, um, the state of being alone, there's this assumption that it's, you know, if you, if you love being alone, be alone all the time, you know, and it's <laughs> not, you know, I think there's the, the question of moderation is so important. And, you know, even being able to admit, being able to voice what seems like a taboo that if you have a young child, you probably want some adult companionship, you know, at least mm. once a day. I mean, you know, it's, it's, otherwise it's, it's that interminable period. And even, you know, even, wanting to have perhaps an adult witness to being out with your child and to be able to you know to say oh isn't that lovely that thing that they've done I I suppose yeah that's a great point Francesca witnessing is such a good word for that yeah that's what's missing a lot of the time that's interesting yeah and you know I think it was interesting how you speak about the process of you and Nick deciding to have children in the book you um you speak about a lot about how Nick was sort of concerned with the logistical aspects, sort of thinking, you know, do we have enough money? Are we in the stages of our careers? Are we are we ready? Did you feel almost that you had to be endure that loneliness of being at home while Nick wasn't allowed, you know, even to be given, you know, compassionate leave, that that term to be given that just a co-parent you know that's bonkers you did you but did you feel like you had to endure that loneliness because he was the one that sort of had taken that logistical role I think I made an enormous error um quite early on in our parenting life where I felt because I had campaigned so strongly and vociferously to have a child I then felt unsure and scared of showing Nick how hard I was finding it I think that, you know, in the early stages, I thought that if I exposed Nick to the grit and grizzle, the, the, the exhaustion, the desperation of having a small child, he might just say, I never wanted this. This I told you this was a bad idea and stand up and walk away like a lot of people have. You know, a lot of people have left their children because for all sorts of reasons that are so personal and so mysterious to me, but it happens all the time. And so I thought I can't wake him up in the night and I can't make him, you know, I'm not, I wasn't like Jacob re-smogging him. He was still changing nappies and doing stuff. But I, I was sort of worried that if I showed him how upset I was and if I showed him how lonely I was and how hard I was finding it, there would be a sort of a recrimination for me, you know, or that it would in some way validate his concerns that we should have never had a child in the first place. And so I think unwittingly for a little while, I slightly pushed him out of his own fatherhood because I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make him get up in the night and I wouldn't, um, I still made him dinner every day when he got home. And like Nick is not in any sense, uh, (laughs) like an old fashioned patriarch. Like he would, like the, the, I, I had this sort of belief I had to have hoovered the house and cleaned up the sick and I needed to have flushed away the blood in the toilet before he got home. And actually 
Nick is perfectly capable of dealing with all of that stuff and being tired and, you know, in subsequent years has proved himself a completely brilliant dad. But I was very scared. It's like what we were, it goes back to what we were saying very early on about if you show your vulnerability and you depend on someone, you leave yourself very open to being hurt and being disappointed. And I was terrified of being hurt and disappointed and abandoned, really. Um, and to be abandoned is a form of being alone that nobody wants. <laughs> Absolutely no one wants to be alone against their will, I don't think. And so I did also because our son, the little shit, never took a bottle. So I uh, breast, it was me. I, could, I was the only one who could feed him for months. And when I say I was the only one who could feed him, for people who haven't breastfed, that means that for at least four months, you cannot be more than four hours away from your child. Every four hours, you have to feed that baby. And that might, you know, I had a friend who, wanted to go and work at a food bank and she was like but they, I'd have to go to two hour shift because it takes me an hour to get there and then an hour to get back and I'd have to feed my baby and when I was working as a lifeguard Nick would have to come and pass our son over the railing of where I worked because it was a women only space and I would have to feed my son like standing up and then in in the middle of a path and then pass him back over the railing and until the next you know until my next break and then I could feed him again it's sort of insane and I think there is a much wider um discussion to be had about the politics of breastfeeding and the politics of quote-unquote natural parenting and, and the enormous burden it puts on the primary caregiver uh, the sort of physical parent in that in that state but so the reality was I was doing the lion's share of the parenting and I was reluctant to let Nick into the sort of quote unquote shit bits and so I was making myself more and more and more alone and he was getting further and further and further away from being a dad and luckily I had a brilliant midwife and I had a brilliant therapist and I had my family around me and they sort of all managed to convince me that Nick wouldn't abandon me if he got very tired <laughs> and that I actually the only the thing that might push our relationship apart would be this sort of fervor I had about keeping it all in my control and keeping Nick away from the worst bits um and so there is definitely a balancing act to be uh to be undertaken there where you have to let people in and trust them a lot and that doesn't have to be a partner um I sometimes feel like I'm painting single parenting as as an experience that I've never had so by what rights do I say it's hard but it does look hard from the outside but of course you have you have other people around you and there are there is still at the moment thank god an nhs that can step in and you'll have health visitors and midwives and breastfeeding clinics and all of those things and play groups and playgrounds and eventually nurseries and eventually schools and there is a, a wider safety net there to keep you flying off into complete isolated misery um but you have to also open yourself up to other people's health and that can be quite hard to do I think. Can I ask I, I think perhaps this is an impossible question. Oh good okay hit me. Yes I mean just just to just to start that off yeah just to just to um yeah that that optimistic starts the question but no so I wonder you know we, we have all these stats about new mothers being the loneliest people in, inside and outside of lockdown 
for you, you know, you went through two situations which were perhaps lonely in themselves. You know, you went through being newly single at 28 and worrying about, you know, the question of having a baby of, you know, and you, you were, you're watching your friends around you get, um, get engaged and get pregnant. And you do speak about that in the book about how, while those are joyous things, they also do sort of rub against you and also at the same time make you question your own choices so you know that was in in one sense a lonely situation versus early motherhood what was what was lonelier what was more of a lonely situation I think it's not an impossible question it's just a very unsavory question and so well done you for asking it because I like unsavory questions I think motherhood for me is lonelier because I had possibly idealized it that I thought that I would be entering you know in the even when I was pregnant I remember looking at other pregnant people on buses and thinking I have this incredible portal into the minds and bodies of every other pregnant person on the planet my god this is amazing I can go up to like a 40 year old Korean woman and understand what it's like in her back and in her bones and in her brain and I can walk up to a 14 year old Afro-Caribbean woman and understand how she had the the taste in her mouth and the ache in her shoulders and I can walk up to a 60 year old grandmother and say I know how you felt when you you know I it felt like I was joining this incredible global community of pregnant people and how could you possibly feel lonely when you're in that and so the the reality that you spend days and nights alone with someone who can't speak to you maybe doesn't keep eye contact with you certainly won't listen to you still even at three sometimes appears to not even like you (laughs) um that was a very brutal that was a very brutal contrast whereas I think being single and in my 20s um there was enough of a cultural narrative around being single that I was prepared for it and I hadn't idealized it. I didn't think I was going to be like a size eight model drinking cocktails on a rooftop, having sex with like a hundred different Mexican waiters. I knew that basically I was probably going to slog my way through a lot of crap shags with not very nice men before I found someone who was halfway decent. And so uh, I did feel wild, painful, revolting envy and seething resentment every time a very close friend of mine got pregnant and I cried at people's weddings because I felt like I was losing my friend to someone to this great institution called marriage that I sort of didn't like and I was sad when friends of mine moved out to buy houses and they were no longer around the corner you know I, I experienced all sorts of unpleasant variations of loneliness envy loneliness anger loneliness self-pity loneliness um but I didn't feel I didn't feel like I was failing somehow in quite the same way I think when I felt lonely or when I feel lonely as a mother now I feel like I'm failing because I should be someone who can stare into the sort of boiled pasta face of my child and just feel absolute euphoric love and that I am you know, I am in this beautiful symbiotic relationship that gives me everything I've ever longed for emotionally, physically and psychologically. Um, that sort of, you know, I remember people saying to me, oh, the first moment you look into the face of your child, it's like falling in love. And I never had that. 
I've never looked into his face and felt the kind of love that makes you want to stand on the rooftop and scream, he's mine, I'm the best, life is wonderful. I love him. I would literally peel the skin off my body to wrap him in it if he was a bit cold. I He makes me laugh. He it is beguiling to see your own features spread out across the face of someone that you grew like there's so much of it that is brilliant but it's not it's not like being in love in my case and it's not like it's it doesn't feel like a sum total of my human achievement and it doesn't make me it doesn't make all the other difficulties difficulties in my life disappear and so I think a lot of what we consider loneliness is the feeling of relative failure. You know, it's failure relative to the success of the people around you. And I slightly imagine and hope that everyone else around me is feeling those same things. We're just not talking about it very much. So when I say maternal loneliness, fury, disappointment, boredom, don't get enough airtime, I mean, they, they really don't get enough airtime. So when we feel them, we feel badly about feeling them. And we shouldn't, because I think they're a universe experience. I genuinely can't believe that someone could watch an hour of Bing and not want to slightly shred their own head. It's <laughs> like, it's, it's boring. And, and on a rainy day, to be covered in someone else's spit and peanut butter on three hours sleep is shit and I don't know why we don't talk about that more (laughs) thank you so much for you know for answering that question so honestly because (laughs) we we don't because that's you know that's and that's everything that you stand for in the panic years as well you know we don't talk about these things well let's hope so wouldn't it be awful Francesca if no one else did feel like this (laughs) what if this is the kind of observational comedy routine I do where the crowd just goes completely silent and all other parents in the world look at me with horror but I don't think I don't think that's the case (laughs) at all and I think that's the fear of perhaps every single writer wondering you know what if no one else in the world feels the way that I do and that's that's the point of writers um that definition uh finally of loneliness you know, as a sort of sense of failure. I've never heard that before. And I think it's fascinating. And I completely get it. You know, it's that failure to, I suppose, have the human, the level of human connection that you think you should have or, you know, expect to have, you know, whether that is with a very young child. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure it's very, very hard to have a conversation with a three-year-old, even <laughs> at the age of three. <laughs> or, you know, or whether that's, you know, whether that's being able to have, you know, the, the partner that you want or the family that you mm. want or any of that. So I think, thank you for that definition. Um, I want to move to talk to you about alonement because, we, you know, we've sort of alluded um, throughout the podcast to that absolute joy that you, uh, you know, have taken throughout your life in time alone and all the wonderful things that you do do you I think you know I think I can gauge the answer to this from hearing about your 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 morning escapades to go to go for a swim (laughs) when I had Connie Hook the former Blue Peter presenter on this podcast she spoke about alonement as a sort of pre-children life stage but do you think that you know now that your son is three do you think that it's something that you a feeling you're able to integrate back in now? Mm. I think I would relate it to just occasionally now, I wake up with a feeling 
it's almost like you've woken up with a song in your head that you sort of know but can't quite remember <clears throat> or you can smell something that is familiar but you can't quite locate what it is or you have there's something exciting and you you know the feeling the few seconds before you remember it's your birthday but you wake up knowing that it's a nice day and I think I now that my son is weaned so I'm no longer breastfeeding him and he goes to nursery uh, which is a fairly relative a relatively recent development so he's not with me all the time and uh, I am physically almost the same person I was before I had a baby I occasionally wake up and the thing I'm remembering and the sort of tantalizing flavor that I can almost locate is what it felt like to be alone before I had a child or it's the person I was before I had children so Connie I can completely understand what Connie Hunt means but the brilliance of that is that you get it more and more the older your child gets you know and I think that that's the when people say it takes a village I I completely agree that the reason you need other adults in your life as a parent is in order to enact the roles that you can't I cannot be everything everything that my child needs I can't discipline him all the time I can't love him all the time in a sort of cheerful playaways way I can't make him laugh all the time I can't be the only person to feed him I can't be the only person to play with him he needs other people and as other people become entwined in his life I'm more free to do the things that fill up my internal hollows and for me that's always been nature and I'm, you know, I'm not talking about a grandiose, like I'm going to walk the Andes appreciation of nature. I literally mean waking up at five in the morning and sort of paddling through silt to have a freezing cold dip at, in the middle of December. You know, it can be something fairly brutal and small and short, but it makes me, it makes me feel alive and vital in a way that I struggle to when I'm at home, you know, with the heating on, being, playing with Lego. <laughs> I don't feel particularly vital during that time. And so <clears throat> my alonement is, particularly in lockdown, I have to say, it's more about discovering the gaps in what to the outside might look like a full life in which to have those moments of, isolation by choice and I'm very lucky now that I've got an allotment and digging my god digging should be on the national you should be able to get like a um prescription for digging from the doctor because it's just the most beautiful experience or help like putting up a wall with my dad or chopping down brambles or um running through mud like these things are not available to everyone, of course. You're going to struggle if you're living in Bow to find any of those things, but it's possible um, for most people in most areas of Britain to find a bit of green in which they can be physically active and quiet. And that's oh, and I've also taken up night swimming, which I should say, you know, health and safety wise, I wouldn't recommend to people unless you're a strong swimmer. I am a qualified lifeguard, so I kind of trust myself here, but. There's something about the 
transgressive feeling about getting into the water in the dark in the winter that is magic and I've done it a couple of times on my own and you are terrified and it feels like you're doing something almost lethally dangerous but it's also the almost antithesis of being a caring responsible adult <laughs> you know I'm I joke to people about this that when you are if I am swimming in the cold at night no one can hand me my responsibilities. I'm physically out of reach of all of the responsibilities. I can't reply to emails. I can't look after my son. I can't be, I can't listen to how my partner's day at work was. I can't help my mum remember the passwords to her various logins. Like I can't do any of the things that I'm meant to be doing. I am entirely unfettered by human responsibility. And that for me is, that for me is joy. And I've always, you know, I wrote the book by waking up at sort of four in the morning and working from four until seven in the morning. And they will always be my hours of alonement, I think, where I can either be outside in nature, swimming, running, all those things, or I am in bed writing and there is a, an escape there that, you know, has been bored on about by people much better and more established writers than I have than I am but it's true that there is a um you're almost it's almost impossible to feel alone when you are concentrating on communication like writing you know it's a, an act of reaching out to people um and I don't feel alone when I'm reading or listening to podcasts or writing or indeed talking to people and there aren't that many people who want to talk to you at 4.30 in the morning. There are actually a lot of breastfeeding mums now who are on my WhatsApp <laughs> asking me all sorts of questions. But um, yeah, I think uh, while I think Connie is absolutely right that pre, pre-children alonement is easier to bring to mind and certainly easier to feel romantic about, post-child alonement is still there. Do you know the man, uh, a writer called Alistair Humphreys? He introduced he invented the concept of micro adventures Ooh, which is they're really nice so he basically said you know after he had children he could no longer he this is a man who'd like swum the he'd rode the atlantic and he had cycled i think to nepal or he, like he's done lots of very interesting adventurous things and after he had children he realized he couldn't do that anymore he couldn't just leave his wife and children for nine months and go off and walk to the gobi desert so what he started doing instead was <clears throat> after work hours so he'd finished work at five this is when he was working in office and he would go out into the countryside cook his dinner outside sleep outside maybe swim outside and then get the train or cycle back and be be there in the morning to make his children breakfast get their packed lunches and go off to work again and I think that there's something beautiful about the rhythm of the five to nine as your period for individual adventure. And I think after having children, the restriction on your time makes you so much more adept at finding those slithers of opportunity. Nell, thank you so much. This has been such a fantastic discussion. And you know, by the time this is out, your amazing book, The Panic Years, will be out. And- Hooray! <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for asking me on. I've had an absolute fall.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the show. I really hope you enjoyed listening and that it's given you some valuable advice and inspiration for turning your alone time into alonement. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, then I'd be so grateful if you could leave a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.